someone comes along and takes advantage of a, a farmer who's rurally based, not connected to the market, has no idea what their product is worth. To me, what's really fair is, hey, let's sit around the same table. Let's talk about what's fair. This is the price. What do you think is fair? Hi, everyone, and happy October. It's your host, Anastasia, back with another new episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. I'm super excited we've reached October, and not just because it's one of my favorite months out of the year. All the colorful leaves are here, pumpkins in the air, and Halloween's so close you can almost taste the candy corn. This month, we celebrate two very podcast-relevant events. October is both National Co-op Month and Fair Trade Month. And when I was planning this month's episode, There was only one organization I immediately thought of and wanted to come on the show. Equal Exchange is a cooperatively structured producer and distributor of fair trade products, mainly from South America and Latin America. They're considered pioneers of the modern fair trade movement and have been educating, organizing, and promoting around fair trade for almost 40 years. They are also a great example of how a democratically run organization can simultaneously cause great waves of change and also slip right under our noses. Joining me today is Danielle, one of the leaders of Equal Exchange's citizen consumer community. We're going to talk about challenges facing fair trade today, the role of consumers in creating an equitable food system, and why being a cooperative is at the heart of everything Equal Exchange. So, if that all sounds interesting to you, stick around for your latest episode of That's Rad. Happy October, everyone. In honor of everything that October has to bring us this month, not only with the beautiful fall colors outside and everything that's happening in the produce department, I wanted to honor two other things that are happening this month, which it is National Co-op Month and it is National Fair Trade Month. Basically, we're honoring both the cooperative principles and the principles of fair trade. Two things here at the Littleton Food Co-op we really love. So in honor of this month, I really think we couldn't have a better guest for this month's podcast episode. Joining me today is Danielle of Equal Exchange. Danielle, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited. All right, just to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your role at Equal Exchange is, and how you got involved with them. Great. So my name is Danielle Robideau. I'm an organizer for Equal Exchange. It's always a little bit confusing when people ask anyone who works at a cooperative what their role is, as we can often wear many hats at any given time. But my main role is the organizer, and I work with our citizen consumer community, 
which is our community of about 4,000 activists and supporters of equal exchange. And really the goal of that community is to bring folks in more deeply into our organization, really take the walls down between what it means to be a quote unquote brand and a consumer and really have it feel more human, more like a community where we're learning together, sharing together at times, taking action to make positive change in the food system and for it to feel less like a, a commercial transaction and, and more like a community. For how I got started at Equal Exchange, I have had a lot of history with fair trade, alternative economic systems. I really became interested in a lot of the principles that Equal Exchange stands for back in college. I happened to go to college just a few miles down the road from Equal Exchange, so my history goes very far back to about 12 years ago when I heard about Equal Exchange and the mission and the Latin American solidarity movement. The first trip abroad that I had was to Nicaragua, and it was to compare what a fair trade farm looks like, what a Whole Foods farm looks like, and a Starbucks farm. So really kind of comparing the different systems and being able to understand what that was firsthand. So that was really powerful for me. I grew up in a low-income background, raised by an Italian immigrant. So I just, you know, couldn't – I always just remember thinking from my, you know, ethnocentric perspective at the time when you're a kid and you're just learning about what what the world is, you know, I thought, oh, wow, like I feel like I don't have that much money compared to my peers. And then traveling to Nicaragua, I really just thought – why Why does someone have to suffer for us to be able to get a product? And I kind of just, my heart is there, and I always loved Equal Exchange and was hoping to be there. And so it, it, it's full circle, um, you know, that now I'm here, you know, educating other consumers about really the same thing. That's awesome. We love to hear a full circle story. And I'm super excited because, You've already mentioned so many like terms and phrases that I hope we can discuss a little more. And I think you've proven not only your qualifications, but your passions. So I think we're going to have a really good conversation today. So to get started, one of the kind of, well, I guess, the key tenant of equal exchange, you can debate me or correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but is the fair trade movement. So just to get us all on the same page, what does fair trade mean? And then how do you, as equal exchange, put this idea into action? Yeah, great question. A lot of history there you know, in some ways really loaded from our perspective as the organization that imported the first fair trade product, which was coffee, into the United States in 1986 as part of solidarity with Nicaragua against the embargo. A lot has evolved with the label since that really came into being. The evolution of the movement of fair trade has just gone so many places and, you know, can be really complex. But what I will say, just to simplify it for the consumer, is that fair trade still does mean something, but that there are a lot of big corporations that have got involved in the movement, and a lot of the standards have changed. And, 
we definitely can think that fair trade means no forced labor. There's going to be a minimum price paid for labor. Environmental sustainability is considered in regards to production. But the standards that existed in 1986 are, are very different. It really was not focused on the plantation model, which is something that large-scale industrial agriculture focuses on, regardless of whether it's a more sustainable version of that. So, so one kind of way that we put this into action that's really going above and beyond fair trade as how it stands now is really just having it be a smallholder farmer movement. We only work with small-scale farmers who own their own land and are organized democratically. So there is a bit of a different vision of how we want to show up in the food system and really believing that all parts of the supply chain that are involved are a part of this democratic food system is really what our vision is, that there's space for everyone at the table to show up, for their voices to be heard equally. And basically, we want to put the control in the hands of the workers who historically have had their land and control taken away. And that is one of the reasons that we want to work with democratically organized groups. When you own your own land, it's just a different mindset than if someone's just kind of hiring you and you feel like you have more of that ownership feeling of control and pride for your family. Um, you know, getting together as a community for them was really a necessity because of the political context that was going on around them. But even if plantations don't use a lot of those harmful chemicals that are really extractive of the land, which is a positive, so fair trade is still always going to be better than a conventional product. You can feel better about making that choice. But really wanting to go beyond that is something that's important for us. For instance, take deforestation. That can still happen on a fair trade or even an organic farm, where really when folks are owning their own land. This is, you know, a lot of times their land and where they live, they're wanting to be good stewards of it. You know, you look at pictures of a coffee farm and it looks just like rows and rows and it's so beautiful, but there really is no symbiotic respect for nature and the land if you don't have, you know, I mean, a, a more small farm would look more like a jungle, right, than you can imagine just like rows of plants that look the same. And, and it's, it's really going to be what's best for the soil and for the land and our environment and our planet. Mm, yeah. And it's funny, we just a couple episodes ago spoke with one of our local farmers and we talked about what's sounding kind of the same story of the word organic with the word fair trade and how now that bigger corporations have realized how they can capitalize on using this word that it's almost diluted itself a little bit. And now those who are staying true to the principle of what it is have to find a way to separate themselves from the crowd and also not give in to that pressure of everyone else is doing it and kind of loosely using this word so we can lower our standards and use it loosely too. But it really sounds like with all of the complications that come with it, that equal exchange is is really trying to stay true to the roots and how the term was first used back in 1986. Yeah, and I mean, being one of the first organizations, I mean, we were literally the first 
organization to import a fair trade product in 1986. The fair trade movement didn't exist before we did that. We did that with Paul Rice, the, um, you know, still, I think, the the leader in the fair trade movement. And so I think, you know, this is something that I don't want to discourage consumers. So I just want to say that is that, you know, not to say that fair trade is all bad and that if you're in a store and, you know, there's an option for a fair trade product and a, a conventional product, I still believe that picking the fair trade product is still going to be a better option. But I just want us as consumers who are kind of, you know, part of this culture that thinks about convenience and ease to kind of ask a few more questions, you know, when you are looking at a wall of options or a wall of coffee or a wall of chocolate to really not just look for the label, but also like what is the brand and what do they stand for and to what level on the spectrum of fair trade do you feel like they're living up to those principles. Mm. And speaking of consumer products on the shelves, your work involves working with primarily coffee and cacao for chocolate like that's what you're kind of known for but you also have the tea how was it these industries that were chosen to be focused on yeah great question and I think that coffee and chocolate were always really just like the vehicles for change and what we believed that the trade of food could be done in a way that was just and fair and we kind of just happened to fall into these products. But really, I think what it was was having roots in Latin American solidarity movements, which was what had motivated the original three founders. And these products of coffee and chocolate are deeply inter- intertwined into that history. So the goal was really to be the antithesis of the political violence and corporate land takeover that was prevalent in the 80s. Just even mentioning before that our history really started with solidarity with Nicaragua during the Reagan embargo. And so we found a loophole to be able to still import that coffee back in 1986 by having it roasted in Europe. It then became a product of that country. So we were able to still import it and many hands on deck to try to get that to happen, including some special political leaders as well. Nice. And, I mean, they're both great things, coffee and chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. You want to simplify it to that. For sure. So everything we've talked about so far, mentioned the keywords of, like, it's a democratic process on these farms, and there are fair labor standards, and there's a set minimum price, and there's no forced labor. These are all... They all sound like great principles and great things that, you know, kind of standard that any one of us here in the United States would would really want for ourselves. So then why is this not the standard for our food system? You mentioned before that this is all kind of falls under the realm of the alternative economic systems. So why is it? the alternative so like in other words like how did we get to the point where we needed this special designation and this alternative economy for just treating people right yeah this is a great question really complicated but i'll try at it i think it's not the standard for our food system for a really simple reason really just because it's not the most profitable 
and living in this capitalist society, it's it's really about the bottom line as much as we try to say that it's not. You even think about what is it that millennials, which I can say because I'm a millennial, what do we demand? And it's like we want things to be cheap, to, you know, respect the workers, to be sustainable. And, you know, at some point, like, these things cost money, right? To be all of those things, you have to actually pay people a fair wage. You actually need – it costs more money to be environmentally sustainable, but the the value isn't just in the monetary value, but also in – in the intrinsic and extrinsic value of the product. And so I think this, you know, I'll say that I think it really dates back to kind of the Reagan administration and a lot of those organizations that were global organizations that were meant to monitor commodities, regulate trade, price, and a lot of that was dismantled during that time. And so that was when, because commodities have a nature in them economically where the, the, the price is really volatile. And so what does that mean for somebody, a coffee farmer who's thousands of miles away on a coffee farm is that one day their product could be worth 30 cents on the pound and then the next time it could be worth $2. And so that's, I mean, can you imagine if your income varied that much? So so basically, for instance, let's take the International Coffee Organization. They were real right now they're they're really serving as an informational and and data hub primarily, but they used to have more teeth and they used to really work on trying to regulate global price and and supply um, using tools for example such as quotas and so kind of when all that went away, like there was a big need for fair trade and really to be able to regulate such a volatile and unstable market. The, the other thing is that this stuff was happening really already, but people maybe weren't aware of it. As part of Equal Exchange's mission, all of the people that work at Equal Exchange visit the farms. And so when I was visiting the farm, I mean, we were driving through a river. We were driving this questionable truck, you know, up these, like, tiny mountain roads with branches. Like, you had to duck. We would, you know, yell Rama to, to duck for, from the branches. And so... The, they're really remote areas and, and people are not connected to what is their price, what is the price of their coffee worth? They're not really knowing. So their coyotes, which was what they were called, would be the middle people that would really take advantage of the, the fact that people didn't know what their product was worth and really offer them such a small price for it. So our really idea was cut out the middle person, create direct relationships with the farmers, and then you don't have to pay all those middle people, give it also the farmer they're the people that are doing this work and um, that's taken a long time to build we're a 36 year old organization but it's really what fundamentally our model is based on is direct connection and really for democracy to be present along all parts of the supply chain so for saying that a lot of the inequities root themselves in capitalism do we ever think there was a point where a quote-unquote equal exchange was the norm, at least in modern-day society? I mean, or do we have to go back to, like, the cavemen trades of, like, a rock and, a, and two feathers? That's an equal <laughs> exchange. <laughs> yeah, that that's a great question and getting kind of into like the political philosophy of economies. And I would really say gifting economies from my just anecdotal opinion. But 
I would say, yeah, back to like the gifting and, and bartering economies are the, are the last time that we've seen that. I, I just believe that once the idea of like accumulation, that inherent ugly part of human nature that we don't like to talk about or look at, which is greed, is really something that made it so that these things weren't the norm and that people could forget about it. But I think what's interesting about some of the products that we work with that makes it a lot easier to not think about this is that these products are tropical commodities that grow really far away. So a lot of times people have no sense of what it is like to grow that product, who are the people growing it, and basically what is the process for it to get from point A to point B. And I think that makes it a lot easier to not think about those things because it's really something that you don't see, whereas obviously I think local farmers need all the respect and attention in the world, and it's kind of ironic because you can ask what is the most respected position and, and farmer really just always comes up but people are just not paying what they're saying that they respect which is one thing of people's values matching their actual behavior but I think what's even harder is when you have a farmer that's thousands of miles away and people just can't they can't vision it right right I fully agree with everything that you've said and I think that's why it's great that another huge part of your mission is like the education about it because if you're not educated about farming or fair trade or what these conditions are actually like you don't really have a way to know that something is wrong yes exactly and that kind of gets into my next question and I had a little thought when you were talking about your last answer, but I'm going to save it for this one because I may have just, in a way, answered my own question, but I, I really want to hear what you think about this. So on the Equal Exchange website, you say that its mission is, quote, more threatened today than it was 10 years ago. I personally feel like we see a lot more involvement or at least recognition of the fair trade movement nowadays. So do you think that's true? And if so, like, where's the threat coming from? Yeah, I think we've hit on a little bit, which I don't want to reiterate around just the original vision and the pioneers of the fair trade movement, which is us and a bunch of other outliers that are, you know, in some still in existence. But a lot of those folks have been bought up by, by larger venture capitalists. And basically they, the, the bigger companies are benefiting from the positive value that that brand is associated with, keeping that outward facing brand. And it seems as though it's independent, but really the, it's owned by this large company. I mean, you can even think about Ben and Jerry's, right? Like they're owned by Unilever. And so we can think of Ben & Jerry's as this really radical company. In some ways, they still, you know, I don't want to knock Ben & Jerry's. They still have a lot of autonomy and able, able to do some cool things. But, I mean, Unilever is behind them, right? And so what does that mean mm. for what, how they're able to operate, what they're able to do? And, you know, there have been some movements kind of holding Ben & Jerry's accountable to some things related to dairy by Migrant Justice, who does great work in there in Vermont. That's one example, but I think when you walk through a store as a consumer, you look around and you would have this thought, wow, like there are so many choices. I am overwhelmed by all the amount of choice that exists in this aisle or this supermarket. 
And then the reality is, is that you have three companies that own 90% of the beverages that we purchase in a grocery store. And I think we can guess like who they would be. And, and so is that really choice or is it the illusion of choice? And so I think that's why we're more threatened than many years ago, because the customer sees no problem. They see, oh, wow, there's all these companies, but they don't see that front-facing label is actually there's there's a lot. It's a lot more consolidated than we would believe. And when there is basically five companies that own 35% of a market, abuses are likely, and that's just economics. That's just what – that's human nature, and that's been proven. And so – when you have have that in not just food, but all across the United States, I mean, it really just has us question, like, we are consolidated in every industry, and how do we as consumers and as citizens, like, what do we do about that, right? And that's where that citizen-consumer piece, because it really hits to the two, you know, major sources of power that we have as individuals. We have political power and our right to protest and our right to hold our politicians accountable to what it is that we want as people, but also we have power in what we choose to buy and what organizations we choose to support with our money. Yes, I am a firm believer that the choices you make as a consumer with your dollar, like the dollar is so much more powerful as a tool for making change and making political or environmental or social choices than a lot of people realize. Something that I was going to say, and this is definitely more recent, but it's funny when you were talking about how the food system, like how equal exchange became not so normal anymore was the idea of accumulation my mind immediately went to the beginnings of the COVID pandemic and feeling an increased need for accumulation of stuff and and that hoarding mentality and how it, it we just kind of turned to very much like laser focused consumerism and I need to go out and buy this, 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 and this and like 10 times the amount that I normally would, which is is totally fair because it was such an unknown time and it, we just kind of went back to like instinct and, and without any education. But that such a scary time has impacted people probably more than they realize. And I don't know if necessarily that crazy consumer buying level has like gone away. I think even if we have more information about what's going on right now, granted, we don't have all of the information. There's still a lot of unknowns. But I think our buying habits from that time have stayed with us a little bit more. You know, that's a really interesting question and point that you bring up. And I'm glad you actually brought it up. And it's something I just actually wrote a blog piece that is really thinking about our food system and the COVID-19 pandemic and how it exacerbated a lot of trends that already existed in regards to consolidation, independent companies being bought up. But also we're seeing, oh, like it's this major crisis in supply, which it was, and we felt that. And we had, you know, the one silver lining that we had as equal exchange is when you have these direct partnerships, you're connected, right? I mean, a lot of these bigger companies have such long supply chains, they can't even get to the beginning. They don't even know where it starts. 
And for us, if you have direct connection to the farmer, you can you can call the person up and say, hey, what's going on? And we can try to problem solve in, in a much easier way than if you're completely disconnected, right? And so that was the silver lining for us. But it, I mean, price is has increased. And even just in the last year since 2021, almost 20%. And we're feeling that you go to the grocery store, your, your dollar doesn't go as far. And I think that's something that we can see across the United States. But you have the, the larger companies, they're taking record home profits home. And we're still paying more, right? Like that, that to me, that that's not a math problem that makes any sense for me. Definitely not. Something's not adding up there. And I think when people get super stressed about how far their dollar is going, it's very hard to, again, think beyond your immediate need and think beyond yourself and kind of realize that the profits are still going somewhere. They're just not going to you. So I I do also think with this rise in cost, it's making people question their decision more about buying fair trade products because they come with that reputation of being higher priced and people are like, well, I I really can't afford to do that right now because I already have to spend more than I was anticipating this shopping trip. So I think that's also, like you were saying, it's it's another part of the threat. Yeah, it's it's really complicated. And we get that question a lot around accessibility. We we really try to price our products, considering all the things that go into it, pretty fairly. You can buy our products directly from our website, and you can get a wholesale discount if you buy in a small bulk, if you got together with friends. We also sell, obviously, to food cooperatives, which are amazing, and we are some of our favorite partners. And then there's also what, how much are people getting paid and why aren't people getting paid a livable wage where they can afford quality and healthy products? So so it's like that's the other end of the coin that I feel like people don't talk about as much. It's really like, well, how can the companies lower their price? I mean, at the end of the day, there's only so much that we can work with. We're wanting to also pay the farmers the price. It costs money to get to us our supply chain has become more complicated with COVID. All those costs are going up. You know, so these are really hard questions, but I do think we need to tackle, we need to tackle affordability, accessibility, and I I don't know if anybody has the answer yet, but it's got to be thought of and given the complexity that it needs. Right. I think even if we can't answer the question, the first step in answering the question is asking the question. Yeah. But you mentioned co-ops, and obviously that's another big reason why we're here. So moving kind of into the co-op part of this, Equal Exchange is structured as a cooperative. So why is that, like, such an important piece of this movement, of the organization as an organization? Like, why was it a co-op? and not something else. Yeah, so really we kind of think about our supply chain as a three-legged stool and really wanting democracy to be present. And I keep saying that, but what does that look like? 
it really means that people have autonomy and control over themselves and their businesses. And so at the farmer level, people are a part of these organizations. They can vote. They own their own land. They're sitting at the table with us negotiating price. They're not price takers, right? We're, we're being honest and upfront with them about the finances. Hey, this is what, this is what it costs us to buy coffee right now. This is what the price is out there. This is what we believe is fair. What do you believe is fair, right? It's having those hard conversations. And then for us as a worker co-op, we were inspired by our Latin American partners, honestly. I mean, they were organized in really impressive ways. And really, it was out of necessity. And our founders really have, like, that history in Latin American solidarity, but really also the food co-op movement and food co-op distribution when that was a thing, right? Like our distribution network, another thing that's consolidated, which I know as a co-op you probably have a better understanding of than even me just saying that. But I think we, as we really envisioned a democratic food system, a worker-owner co-op had to be a part of the model where workers also had control. Mm, That makes total sense. So a lot of the people listening right now are our members who are the shoppers of our store, and they're very familiar with what membership means in regards to a consumer cooperative and a more specifically a food co-op. But to put it into perspective, who are your co-op members? Like, it's not us shopping, right? And then what sorts of things do they vote on? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think a lot of people just hear the word co-op and maybe they do go, their mind does go to food co-op and a consumer-based co-op. I would, I'll talk about Equal Exchange as a worker co-op for right now, but I will, you know, talk at the end about how we are incorporating consumers into our democratic model and sharing power in a meaningful way. But as a, as a worker co-op, it really means that our members vote on different matters. For example, it could be creating a new committee of something that folks want to work on. We just recently created an anti-racism committee. That was something that came to a vote after George Floyd murder. And we can also vote on other matters such as our location and our headquarters. If, if we wanted to move, that would be a vote for the worker owner. If we wanted to start producing a different product, that would come to the worker owners. So so some things come to the worker owners, but also sharing power with the worker owners in a different way because on our board, it is made up a majority of worker owners. So So six of the seats are made up of worker owners, and they're really sitting on the board, which makes its own set of decisions. So a worker owner also has the opportunity to put forth a proposal for change. So basically getting enough worker owners to be able to bring it up at a worker owner meeting, say they wanted to do X, Y, or Z, this would come to a vote to the larger worker owner body, and, and that would be voted on. Um, so, so that's just a few ways that worker owners can really have the power and control. We also have the glass model, which is super complex, and I'm not going to go into it right now, but really it's uh, our our worker owner co-op is made out of different committees, and so worker owners sit on a bunch of those different committees that do different things, such as leadership and training is another example. I'm, I'm on that committee. So, uh, yes, that's a few different ways that worker owners can kind of take back power and control, what they can vote on, and how they can kind of feel empowered in their everyday Awesome. All super important things. And it's always great when, I mean, I'm sure people who don't work at a cooperative 
would love to feel those same things in their own jobs. You know, it's like it's the decision, the decisions being made by the people who are impacted by the decisions directly and having the chance to feel validated and have your voice heard and know that action is going to be taken upon whatever concerns you bring up and you and your fellow worker owners or member owners or whatever it may be, what they bring up, what we bring up. Absolutely. And the the last piece that I wanted to talk about, just because this consumer piece is something that I hadn't spoken about in my last part of the answer, but it's a relatively new part for Equal Exchange. But as a part of the work that I do as the citizen consumer community, we really just believe that in order to survive, consumers need to understand their food, where it's coming from. They need to be involved more with organizations like Equal Exchange who are trying to create positive change in the food system, really asking the hard questions. And so we wanted to open up our governance model to consumers so that they could share that responsibility with us in a really meaningful way. And so three seats on our board are made up of the citizen consumer community, and that vote happens without worker owners being able to vote. So really giving up a little bit of that power so that consumers can really own the hard things that we're grappling with every day in regards to being an alternative economic system in a largely capitalist system that does not function the way that we function. And so really getting folks to understand, you know, firsthand by by sitting on our board with us. And governance isn't always for everyone. And, you know, the citizen consumer community isn't always that serious. We also just have fun events where we're tasting chocolate or coffee as well. But for the folks that, you know, are brave enough to try to run for our board, you know, that's another option. Yeah, so what does it look like to be a citizen consumer part of this community? What does, like, being a part of the community look like? And what are some of the, like, I'm just so intrigued by the idea of you said, like, opening up this cooperative to include the consumers. So how are they involved exactly? Like what kind of things do the community work on and talk about and et cetera? Yeah, so I would separate it into kind of three different buckets. So there's education and shared learning and there's community and then there's action and under that can also go governance. And so on a constant basis, we're educating people on what's going on in the food system, about our our partners, what's going on for them during COVID, and sharing intimate details, right? Like these are, you know, at times if we are able to bring a producer partner virtually or in person, which hasn't happened since the pandemic, but that that was something that we did, gathering people together and having shared learning around these things. And community. So every every month we have a member meeting, and that's really a working space for members to bring up things that they want to learn about something that's going on for Equal Exchange, to ha- to really have uh, an open discussion with peers uh, across the United States who are also part of this network. And then action, and that is the governance piece that I just explained, but also we've done at times different campaigns. So one past campaign we did with in collaboration with Oxfam called Behind the Barcodes, which was holding Whole Foods accountable to the supply chain violations that happen along their supply chain in seafood, which a lot of people laugh at because we're not in seafood, but it's really just a terrible industry where 
the human rights violations that are happening are really just terrible, the worst that you've heard. And not the worst, I mean, you know, what the worst that you heard, that's a little bit subjective, but it's, it's heart, it's heart wrenching, it's heartbreaking. And so we had our consumers go and kind of try to talk to Whole Foods managers. And that was one campaign that we did. Another one was working towards getting folks to get the bill by Cory Booker a hearing. And that bill was called, it's very long name, um, the, Food and Agribusiness Merger Moratorium and Antitrust Review Act of 2019. So say that five times fast if you can, but basically <laughs> <this> was <laughs> some of the things that we were talking about, which is a lot of the bigger companies buying up smaller companies. And so this bill was really meant to pause that larger company buying up smaller independent businesses and then creating a committee to evaluate what is the impact of consolidation and then kind of pave a path forward. Then the pandemic hit and really just like the attention of every politician just had to be there. But that was something that we were working on um, as part of the before the pandemic. And we had about 1500 of our base contact their representatives. We had six in district meetings that we helped organize. And Mark Pocan was also um, a sponsor of that bill as well. And we had some of our citizen consumers meet with him. Yeah. And I mean, you said I know people bulk because we're not in the seafood industry, but clearly what you're doing is you're educating the consumers about these principles that equal exchange holds true and then applying those same principles and learning to other industries, which is kind of what we want, right? Like this doesn't have to stay just isolated to coffee, tea, and chocolate. Like if we are armed with this knowledge and we're coached through these processes of talking to representatives and contacting company heads and all of these major actions. Like that's how the change happens throughout the whole food system. Absolutely. And some of the other things that we do, you know, we get this all the time. You know, people hear about our model. They love it. They think it's great. Why don't, why don't you produce this product? Or what about, have you thought about this? And yes, in some ways we do think about producing other types of products, we're always kind of keeping an open mind there. But at the end of the day, we're not going to be an expert, expert at every product. And it doesn't make sense for equal exchange. You know, that's, the, that's not the point is for us to just make all the products, right? We want to have friends in this industry. We want other people to be doing work like this in this way or inspired by us. So, you know, we, we love the co-op movement. We have a lot of our pools open to folks. Hey, this is what our model looks like. This is our alternative capital model. This is how we got started. You know, how can we help you? How can we help you set up structures when you're just beginning? Because every co-op knows that's the hardest part is really the beginning of just getting started, trying to get capital, trying to set up systems, navigate different different challenges in the beginning, the, le- the legal part. You know, so really wanting to be a resource to other co-ops out there and for them to feel like there's an open door with us and they can ask us anything. Yeah, and I mean, if you went around and produced everything, that would kind of go against what we've been talking about this whole time of of consumers not having choice in these mega corporations producing everything, you know, <laughs> Um Yes, exactly. And and it's to share the power and control. And we, we want other companies like ours to produce different types of products. And another thing that we started to do during the pandemic is obviously independent businesses suffered 
the most is try to offer some like-minded um, independent food makers in bulk on our website for folks to buy and really just have the, the idea is really just that the person making the product and then us and then it gets directly to to the consumer and so really to minimize some of those extra steps and equal exchange does have the benefit like I had mentioned before talking about the silver lining of the pandemic is that we do have control of our own supply chains we do have a distribution network and so how do we utilize that to kind of you know elevate others that we believe are doing other you know cool work yeah totally is there anything else you think people should really know about the citizen consumer community yeah i mean i would just hope that people would join you know this is something that's free we're not trying to charge people we just want people to be connected to us we want other food activists across the united states to connect with each other we want to engage in actions as it makes sense we want to put our dollars into organizations like equal exchange and other folks doing similar work and uh yeah i would just encourage people to not be afraid of a high commitment it really is you could come you know there's there's an entire spectrum of involvement to just coming and learning to you know wanting to get more deeply involved and we do consider some of those other creative avenues that even if someone comes up with an idea hey we think you, you should try this or um you know, I want to do this in my community, like, can can Equal Exchange help me? And so we do feel like there's a mission alignment. We we want people to be more involved. We want people to get their communities involved. And really just basically at the end of the day, we want the food system to be better because we're in it. And so how can we do that as individuals and as organizations? Perfect. And we will definitely also put how to join in the show description below. So look out for that. So, I moved up our question, <laughs> our big question. So, Danielle and I were talking about this before, how we want to talk about some of these themes, but, like, obviously, neither of us are going to have all the answers for any of this. I mean, anything we've talked about, like, this is all also through the lens of, like, a personal personal narrative, but also getting into this specifically, we're going to talk about a very interesting and very difficult concept to grasp. So yeah, we both just want you to know that like, we're two people um, in this whole landscape of everything. But yeah, we, like I said before, you know, we start answering the questions we want to know by asking them. So what I wanted to talk about was there kind of seems to be a level of privilege in the creation of Equal Exchange, you know, back in 1986. So it was started by three white men who were able to leave their old jobs completely to start this new nonprofit that lost money for the first three years and that got its start from, like, not necessarily illegally, but, you know, skating that thin line, as you talked about, importing coffee from Nicaragua. So there is a, that level of privilege in all of that origin. So do you think a level of that has stayed with the organization? I know we were also talking about this idea of the white savior complex and 
a lot of, you know, your work is a business that's about essentially, you know, quote, doing better for those in developing countries. So, you know, there's that where uh, American company and probably, you know, there's a portion of white Americans going to, you know, the developing countries and, and helping them and saving them and getting them a, quote, better life. So let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great question. And it's a hard question. And I would say, you know, to the question of, is there a level of privilege that stayed within the company? I mean, I don't think there's an organization that is out there right now that doesn't have a level of privilege within it because we live in a racist society. So how can you have an organization that doesn't have racism built into it? On that level, I think that we are trying to do the best we can and we are trying to do things differently. So to speak to the white savior complex, what what we're doing is we're this isn't about poverty alleviation and charity work. This is about economic liberation and connecting people to a market. So to me, what's unfair is that someone comes along and takes advantage of a, a farmer who's rurally based, not connected to the market, has no idea what their product is worth. To me, what's really fair is, hey, let's sit around the same table. Let's talk about what's fair. This is the price. What do you think that you that, you know, is fair, right? You know, and we're good. This is what our cost of production is. And, and let's talk about that and, and let's come to an agreement. And I think that's something that it really differentiates us. And one other thing is that technically we are a for-profit, right? So this is a business and we have the respect and belief in our partners to be able to run their own businesses. We don't tell them what to do. They have complete control of that. And they've taken risks. So with the fair trade premiums, often we're paying a dollar above that, at least in across all, most of our products. And so what, you know, what do you, what do you want to, you know, spend this on, you know, and, and folks are making that decision by themselves. So um, we have a really cool example of the Mondavira Cooperative in Paraguay, which basically had a high risk investment of $1 million into processing sugar. And so that allows them to move closer up along a supply chain, which allows them to capture more income. Like that was all them. That had nothing to do with us. We're their partners. The other thing is we don't have exclusivity contracts. Like we you we want you to sell to other people, right? We don't want you to just rely on us. What if Equal Exchange went out of business and we're buying 100% of your products? That's just not a smart business decision. So we encourage people to have other partners that are not just us. So, so in regards to the white savior complex, I do think that that's what really distinguishes like our model from other types of things that I've seen in regards to accessibility and racism. And that's something that Global Exchange is thinking deeply about where we just created a anti-racism committee a few years ago and trying to give back money to organizations that are working on that because we're not the experts. How can we you know, give money to people that are really doing the right things. And then how can we look internally, like, at ourselves and realize that as by virtue of being uh, an organization within a racist society, how can how can we do better and how can we be actively anti-racist? And that's something that I think we don't have the answer to right now, but it's like we need to start seriously keep – we need to keep asking these questions, but also we need to – really hold ourselves accountable to trying to put forth solutions and action. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me when you're saying that we're not 
we're not tying anyone directly to us with the exclusivity contract or even just the fact that, like, the goal here is not to make farmers so reliant on equal exchange. It's like, kind of, I guess, the goal would be to eliminate equal exchange as that barely their middleman. And, like, if there could be direct trade, there would be direct trade. Like, I would even... I would even go as far to say is that we're not even like we can connect people to tools at times, but really we have, they're our business partner and we offer them a service and they offer us a service and we're in a community relationship with each other because so take for coffee, for instance, a lot of people ask, well, why don't the farmers roast the coffee? Well, I mean, if your consumer base is in the United States, like that, that for freshness of coffee, it's just, you know, we roast the coffee and we have that expertise. We have all the equipment and, and that and that's here. And also the coffee will spoil. And so a big part of what we're able to do is hold inventory in green beans because you can have inventory in green beans in a warehouse and in a safe place where the the freshness can be preserved. But so, so that's just the one example, right? That's just talking about coffee. That's one of our major products. We also have a lot of other products, bananas, avocados. These are fresh produce that's a totally separate and more complicated supply chain that it's really even a miracle that we exist in but it's it's a complex topic and um the at the end of the day i just want to say that these are our business partners we have complete faith in in folks to be able they're smart so smart smarter than us in many ways i mean really like our our worker owner co-op movement was inspired by the way that they were organized democratically. And so we're learning from each other and we really want to see them as really smart business people that we want to work with and that we totally trust and to have that mutual trust in each other. Mm. Um, Something that I appreciate from the consumer side as well is I feel like for a lot of the fair trade movement, you know, and talking about these other companies that participate, there can almost be a level of, like, harshness or maybe even guilt in presenting these products. You know, we know that these ideals that companies like Equal Exchange are practicing are so, so, so important, as we discussed before. But a lot of times it can come off as, like, if you don't buy this specific bar of chocolate, you're keeping everyone in poverty for the rest of their lives, and it's all your fault. And if you don't do this, like, you're a terrible person. Whereas I feel like the equal exchange movement and messaging is just, like, we're giving you this information to let you know what's going on, and you as the consumer are, like, free to make that choice, even as we've been talking today you've never like pressured me or anyone listening to like make certain choices it's all about like here's the information and you are free to do what you want with it and we're just kind of saying like if you're able to this might be a better choice yeah yeah absolutely i mean people are going to do the best they can with what they have and that's all they can do but the more information that we can provide people with and connect them to really where their food is coming from and to not hide that from them because that's really what the the mainstream system wants to do is to keep consumers not informed, keep them not involved, ask them to do less, to think less. And what's really hard about what we're doing is that in this kind of like 
culture of really wanting convenience, we're asking people to do something slightly inconvenient, which is think critically about where you're getting your product, but everyone can do that and that's free. And it might mean that, hey, I can't afford this product right now. And then, and then that's not just an issue of an individual not being able to afford it. It's our politician for, you know, instilling policy that supports a living wage. It's companies for trying to, you know, what, how do we make this product more accessible or have, you know, a, a scale or, or that type of a thing. I mean, everybody has shared responsibility in our system, but I think what our capitalist system is saying is, you know what, just all the responsibility is not on the consumer. We just need you to buy. We just need you to keep buying. And so, yes, we still, you know, Equal Exchange appreciates everybody that buys from us because we wouldn't be here if folks didn't. And that's the reality. But we we also want to inform people to make better choices within whatever it is that they can do. Mm, I think that's so important. And that's what I was going to kind of wrap up with here is maybe on a more uplifting note, how can we as individuals, keeping in mind the cost barriers, whether real or perceived, make sure that we are contributing to a food system that equitably values the participation of everyone involved while dealing with all sorts of barriers that are there? Yeah, it's it's really hard to say, but I, I will say that we are trying to be as affordable as we can be. Even dating back to like the depression, a lot of people used to buy things in bulk. And during the pandemic, a big trend that we've been seeing is that people are not buying as much bulk and they're buying more packaged. And for an environmental and an economic reason, that's not ideal. I know that people can, do you have a bulk section at your food cooperative? We certainly do. Just a plug for that is that that's something that, you know, you're saving in terms of packaging. Bulk prices are often better. And that's just that's just something to think about. How do we get creative around, you know, like a cost per unit? But at the end of the day, like this isn't going to be for everybody. And that's something that is a larger societal issue that we need to we need to consider as individuals, as organizations, holding our political leaders accountable to work for us. And, um, you know, definitely a much more complicated question that needs attention. Yes, definitely. But I think the message here that we're trying to say is even if you cannot buy every single product fair trade certified, there are plenty of other ways that you can contribute positively to your equal food system. And we've talked like that's what this whole episode is littered with ways to to do that absolutely and then we do hope folks will get connected to our community and you know plug in in different ways that we're we're always thinking about different ways that people can make more positive choices and so thank you so much for this podcast and for inviting us to talk we really appreciate it and we really value consumers and that is why we really want to invite them into our model in a deeper way because we really feel like to be able to move forward and to create change like we really need that part of the supply chain and you know not to understate how important consumer choice is in regards to buying but also like how you raise your voice and I just want to empower people to be able to do that because really without you folks there there is no food system right and so you actually do have a lot of power 
All right, awesome. Before you get back to doing your incredibly important work, we have to know, or I have to know, what's your favorite equal exchange product? Um, great question. So I would say the Ethiopian blend is definitely my favorite. I also like the Mexican blend of our coffee for chocolate. I it's gonna sound weird, but we have this um lemon, ginger, and black pepper, which sounds like a weird flavor, but it totally works. And then we also have a sea salt almond bar that's one of our newer bars that's one of my favorites too. I have personally not been brave enough yet to try the lemon ginger pepper, <laughs> but I have heard such great things about it. So I totally take your word and you know, maybe that's what I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna go grab one. Um, but Danielle, thank you so, so much for sharing all this information and talking with me, and I really appreciate it. I learned so much, and yeah, I'm excited to see what Equal Exchange continues to do and what the consumer community blossoms into. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for hanging out for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing more about fair trade and co-ops through the equal exchange perspective. Thanks again to Danielle for coming on and sharing her time, thoughts, and passion. Remember to check out the show notes down below for links to blog posts, how to join the citizen consumer community with Danielle, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to tell us by leaving a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also support the show by hitting that big subscribe button and also just telling your friends about us. Both things cost absolutely nothing and help us immensely. If you have any topics you want us to discuss or guests you want to hear on the show, maybe even you, let us know. We're always looking for new episode ideas. So, happy Fair Trade Month, happy Co-op Month, and until next time, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.